The following teaching is from the 2013 All in Men's Conference at Camp Choye. We hope it's a blessing to you. For more information about the men's ministry at Houston's First Baptist Church, you can visit us on the web at houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. Tonight I'm going to talk about uh, really the, the, the difference that made the difference uh, in, in the area of my commitment to the Lord. And then tomorrow I'll talk tomorrow night about the difference that made the difference in my life, and, and it was discipleship. So, so I'm going to give you guys really what I think is the one definitive thing. People say, well, probably what was it that changed your life? How did God change your life? And it was discipleship. And it's really changing our church as well. So I, I want to commend that to you tomorrow. I want to help you guys do that. And so tonight will be more challenging. Tomorrow will be more practical uh, for you guys. The title tonight is this. Actions speak louder than words. We have two sons. Rig, who is five years old. And Ryder, who is three years old. And, and believe it or not, they already, already like uh, UFC fighting. And, but unfortunately, it's together. So they think to wrestle together and, and the mom is trying to figure out a way to separate these kids, these two boys, and, and have them pick up after themselves because they never want to pick up. How many people have boys that just don't want to pick up after themselves? And so that's how our boys are. And recently we taught our boys a, a new game at the ages of four and two called Simon Setch. Remember that game? Uh, does anybody Okay, well, this is the audience participation part, by the way. Does anybody remember that game? Okay, awesome. You guys are with me. So, so we taught our boys that game, and what's interesting is Candy, my wife, has figured out, and I know you're not going to believe this, but every night before bedtime, Simon says, clean up the room. I mean, it's just crazy. Like, always wants to clean up the room. And, and, and the way the game works, if you remember, is you say, Simon says, jump, and then you what? You jump. Simon says, sit down, and then you what? And you sit down. And then when you're least suspecting and you're not paying attention, you say, sit down. And what do you do? You sit down. You sit down without thinking and you lose the game. And it's interesting how as children, you and I follow the rules to a silly game. But the question I want to ask you tonight is this. How do you respond when Jesus says? How do you respond when Jesus says blank in your life? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. How we respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and really what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to take you back to high school. And I'm going to give you a pop test. How many people hated pop tests? I hated pop tests. So the pop test. And this pop test is going to determine where you will spend eternity. And basically the pop test is going to ask you, one, are you a professing believer in profession only? Or two, are you a practicing believer, which is a true believer? Now, the cool thing is, the way you answer this test will determine where you spend eternity. So, you want to know the results to this test. So the cool thing is, it's better for you to know the results tonight than when it's too late. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, and you'll need your Bibles uh, for the next few days. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. When you get there, say word. Be excited about saying word, Pastor Greg, a brainer, because we believe it's the word that changes our life, not cool stories or funny illustrations. If you came for those, you're not going to get many of them. But we believe it's the word that changes our life. And the second reason is I was raised in a different religion. I was actually raised Roman Catholic. I'll tell you that in a minute. And uh, my mom used to hate it when I talked in church. So as a young boy, would talk in church, and she'd take her two fingers, and she would lean over and pinch my leg, and she'd say, "You're no talking in church." So now that I'm a pastor, I want to give you an opportunity to talk in church. You know, we're not in church tonight, but let me know you're awake. So if you're at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, say word. The word of the Lord. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If, and that's he, we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, here it is, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
pray as we begin this evening. Father, I count it a privilege to be able to speak to these men, and it's not that I have anything to say to them apart from your words, that I stand on the word. And God, we want to hear what you have to say. Because we know that men come from different backgrounds, different testimonies. Some in here are lost, and they don't know the way, because they don't know Christ. And so, Lord, we do pray that all the baggage that was brought in tonight would be left here. And, and that men would be set free from whether it's an addiction or pornography or, or pride or arrogance or anger. That we would do business with you tonight as we take this pop quiz to determine if we're a professing person only or a practicing believer. God, we want to know because eternity hangs in the balance. Help us today to see Jesus. You are the answer to every question we have. You're the solution to every problem we face. We ask it in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ and everyone said. Amen. Amen. Let me give you the, let me give you kind of the overview of the, of the assessment. And the assessment, John says, is determined by our obedience. I encourage you to take notes. Uh, you, you want to go through this. And I'm giving you just to give you a kind of a heads up. After every session, I've given you a couple of questions that I put together to, to help you really solidify and assimilate the message uh, that you're hearing. So the first one is the assessment is determined by obedience. And the key word there is the word no. It's the word that John uses. It permeates the entire book of 1 John. If you've ever heard 1 John preach or walk through the book of 1 John, it permeates the text. Now the word no is an interesting word because for the classical Greeks, they believe that knowledge was obtained through human reason. So, so guys like Aristotle or Plato or Socrates, they would sit and they would debate for hours by human reason, intellect, they could solve any problem in the world. The Hellenistic Greeks, on the other hand, believe that knowledge was obtained through this intellectual ascent in spirituality, and it was in the form of Gnosticism, as you guys are familiar with. Gnosticism, if you knew the special handshake or, or the secret password, then you can, as a joke, you can enter into the spiritual realm and you can get this revelation. But for the Jews, knowledge was always obtained through one way. Divine revelation. For the Jews, knowledge always started, started with the revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see this word permeating the text, and it's the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko. It's used 30 times in this letter alone, and it's interesting because the word knowledge there means more than just intellectual assent. Get this. It means to learn by doing. You see, this knowledge is learned through experience. It's learned through interaction. And so it's not just something you study for a test. It's not just stories that you read, although that's part of it. It's learned through interaction and experience. John says, look at it. We know that we have come to know him. This kind of knowing is not just from learning the facts. It's about being intimately related and spending time with the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. He says again, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or what? The audience participation part. Seen him or what? Knows him. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There it is. And it's an interesting connection between love and God, and I'll get to that in a minute. Anyone who's not loved does not know God, because God is love. Now, there's a difference between the English word data, D-A-T-A, and the Hebrew word, for those Hebrew scholars in here, da'at. It sounds similar, but they're different. The Hebrew, the Hebrew word for da'at da is different than David because the English idea of knowledge is you just fill the mind with facts. You go to school and you get degrees and if you really want to be advanced, you get advanced degrees and you get PhDs, you get all these degrees, you get letters behind your name and that's how we learn by filling our minds with data. But that's not how the Jews or the Hebrews, Jesus, would have viewed the word know. It's actually used in the, in the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis. Let me show you the first instance of this word Da'at, which is the Hebrew word for knowing. And here's a great hermeneutical principle for you guys to learn. Whenever you're trying to interpret the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, whenever the here's take a concordance and find where the word is first used. And where the word is first used, it will give a shadow, give a picture, it'll give a meaning for the entire use of the word for the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
So this is how cool is this? This is the first instance in Genesis chapter four, verse three or verse one. Let's start one where the word know is used. We know it from the first couple. Genesis chapter four, verse one. When you there say word. Adam, circle it if you circle in your Bibles. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, it describes this intimate relationship between a husband and your wife. I don't have to tell you guys about the birds and the bees to figure out what's going on here, right? They're not talking about knowing, just knowing one another uh, distantly. They're talking about an intimate, one flesh union between a man and a woman. Would you understand, get this, that that's the same idea John uses in First John. He says, you need to know God. You need to have an intimate relationship with him. John chapter 8, 32. You shall know the truth, Jesus says, and the truth shall what? Set you free. Now, now don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. If Jesus was interested in you and I just learning a bunch of facts or even having knowledge that could be transmitted into our head, Jesus would have done this, which is interesting. He would have called the disciples to him one after another, placed his hands on their forehead and said, Know all truth. Finally figured out Calvinism and Arminianism. <laughs> I finally figured out the, the providence of God and the free will of man. I, I finally know justification and sanctification and glorification and propitiation and expiation. I know them all, right? That's not how it works. See, see, we learn and know someone by spending time with them. So, so you're asking the great question, and this is the question that has to be asked. How do we learn about God? How do we know God? It's about spending time with Him. You know, the spiritual disciplines are the greatest practices that you can practice in your life. Reading the Word, memorizing the Word, fasting, praying, seeking the Word, silence, solitude, worship, evangelism. And, and so what John says right off the gate is, you need to know, but knowing leads to obeying. Look at the text. So, so by this we know Him if we keep His what? Commandments. Now that's interesting. Because that word obey or, or, or obedience is the idea of following or observing or, 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 or taking up the commands of God. That word commands is used 14 times in the book of 1 John alone. And, and the word commands is used both in the singular and the plural tense. And, and I just want to break it down for you simplistically. Jesus is not talking about obeying all 613 Old Testament commandments. It's not what he's talking about. Because we know in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law, right? So praise God, when we come to God through Christ, he sets us free from the law, the burden of the law. Right? We don't have to, we don't have to obey the law. We can't work to be saved. But get this. Once you are saved, you will live a life of good works for God. Okay? So you don't work to be saved. And you work from salvation, right? But what's interesting is, Jesus is saying something I think can be boiled down into two commandments, because he gave it to us. He said, if you want to know what are the greatest commandments, Jesus said there's two. You shall what? Do you know what? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's a harder one to do sometimes, huh? I love God, and I serve the Lord, but boy, it's tough to to love other people. I I love the Great Commission, because Jesus invents this in the Great Commission, and I find when people quote the Great Commission, they miss this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey, that's the command they missed. All that I've commanded, behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Teaches them all that I've commanded you. Because, listen, when you obey the commands, it's more than taking notes. It's more than hearing a sermon. It's more than reading the Bible. It's putting in practice. Now, here's the cool thing about John. John says, your obedience is the test by which you can determine if you're a believer. Okay, so so I can't take this test for you. You have to take this test, and, and you have to be honest about the test as you look at the landscape of your life to determine where you are now and where you will spend eternity. And I know in a group this size, there are many men in here today who would say, "Wow, I look at my life," or, or, or most men would say, "Wow, I understand the commands of God," but when I look at how this flesh 
flesh is out of my life. I don't see a lot. And John says, here's the test. The first one is, are you a professing person only? Write it down. Are you a professing person only? This individual is all talk and no walk. Do you know anybody like this? John says, this person is a liar. So John says, look at the text. This person is a liar. Anyone who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. That word liar means to be false toward God. It's the same word in the New Testament that Jesus uses in John chapter 8, verse 44. So turn, turn your page here. John, writing the same gospel book, uses the same word to describe a person that we're familiar with. Actually, not a person, but the devil. John chapter 8, verse 44, when you there, see the word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, that's a form of the word, he speaks out of his own character. Here it is. For he is a liar. Same word. And the father, father of lies. Go back to first John. There are two words that if we understand the tense of the word, men, we understand the meaning of the text. Okay? So if we understand the tense of these words, we understand the meaning of the text. The first word is the word know. Anyone who says, I know God. That word is in the perfect tense. Now, now what does the perfect tense mean to you in English from Greek? The perfect tense is a tense that's not used a lot in the language of the New Testament Greek. And when it's used by the author, it's always intentional and for a purpose. Okay? And basically, it's a concept that happened. It's an event that happened in the past that has ongoing results. So John says, there's no way you can say, I know God in the past and have ongoing results without following it with works. And notice what the second word is, to keep, does not keep. So you can't say, I know God and not keep. That word does not keep is an active present tense verb. What does that mean? This is the idea that is continual, right? It's consistent. It's something that is repeated over and over and over. And so this is what John says. These two ideas are mutually exclusive. Right? They're, they're, they're separated together. Right? They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, they are mutually exclusive. You cannot connect these two together. They are separate concepts. In essence, what he says is, these people are liars. Why? Because they're sin practitioners. These are men or women who basically are enslaved to sin. Yeah, they could be good people, they could be raised in church, they could be attending church, you could be in here tonight, you're a good person at heart, you, you want to do good things for people, you, you may be a good husband at times, maybe be a, a good father at times, but you are a slave to sin. Because you don't have any victory over sin. So you are enslaved to sin because you disobey the Lord. Now why does John call this person, this man or woman, a liar? And I think the reason for that is this. The result of a relationship with Christ will result in obedience to Christ, right? So, so when you gave your life to the Lord, for those who have, there were some definitive marks in your life. There, there, there were some definitive actions that took place after that. And if that didn't happen, I, I would question if you really know Christ. Follow me for a moment. Let's say you're standing on the corner of a busy street downtown Houston. And you're about to cross the street and you look at the distance and you can't really see because it's really foggy and it's really early in the morning. And you're about to step off the curb to cross the street to the other side. And, and you look and you look as, as good as you could through the fog. And you go to step off the curb and you start to walk quickly. And all of a sudden you look and there's an 80,000 pound Mack truck bearing down on you, and you can't do anything, so you go run back and boom, it Bone-crushing steel in contact with your flesh and your bone. Now, if you survive the accident, which you may not, but if you survive the accident, you're going to be very badly contorted, right? Your disposition is going to be altered forever. Your body is going to be disfigured and crippled, right? There will be visible marks in your body, right? 
Come in real close. Don't you think that when you come in contact with the God of the universe, the one for whom the Bible says angels sing day and night, covering their faces because they can't even look at God. The ones who He created can't even look at Him, and they've been singing for billions of years, and all sing for billions and billions of years. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Don't you think if you came in contact with the God of the universe, there would be scars in your life? Guess what John said? The scars are obedience. That's the spiritual markers in our life. So, so Pastor Robert, how, how do we determine if we have come in contact with the God of the universe? Has your demeanor changed? Has your anger problem began to subside? Has your attitude changed? Do you have a desire for holiness? Do you have a desire for the Word? Do you, do you have a desire for godly friendships and community? Do you have a desire for worship? You don't worship the same as you used to before. Because John would say, if that hasn't happened, anyone claiming to be a person who knows God and doesn't obey God is a liar. And secondly, they're lost. Notice what he says there. And the truth of God is not in him. Now, pretty interesting. Because he uses the same word in chapter 1, verse 8, when he talks about the truth of God not in him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. A person who is lost is without truth, right? Truth is not in him. Now, I'm not saying that you will not fall into momentary sin. I'm not saying that you'll not have a season of sin in your life, because all of us have gone through that as believers, where we, we have these things in our life that we're trying to overcome, right? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, if the pattern of your life is being a practitioner of sin, I would question your so-called commitment of profession to God. Now, where do I get that? Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. And this is a way that we can determine if, if we're believers. Maybe there's the word. Tell you a secret I learned in seminary. I was radically saved in 2000. And I'll tell you that in a moment. And uh, I went to seminary one year later. Pastor Weber still don't know how they let me in seminary. And I talked to the president, Chuck Kelly, at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And I said, how in the world did you let me in seminary one year after a $180 a day heroin and cocaine addiction? And he said, we just didn't know. If we would have known, we probably wouldn't have gotten there. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they got first grace and blindness. But anyway. So, so I'm in seminary class one year after being a believer. And they're saying, turn to Obadiah. Well, I didn't even know, I didn't even know Obadiah was in the book, right? And so somebody tapped me on the shoulder. And it was interesting because Brad, who's on staff, knew me at William Carey when, when, when I was a sin practitioner and lost, and we played basketball together. Is that crazy? And so he finds out I'm coming speaking to you guys, and he's like, bro, I didn't even know you were saved. So so a guy tasked me on the show, but he's like, hey man, turn to page three of your Bible. I was like, really, what's on page three? The content. So, so, so you want to beat your buddies to, to Galatians next time? Page three. I had I had it on finger hold and I just open them up and go right to it. So anyway, Galatians chapter three. Or Galatians, sorry, I'm not even know where I'm at. Galatians chapter five, verse nineteen. Now the words of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, sensuality. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, dissensions, envy, strife, drunkenness, orgies. I, I warn you now, as I've warned you before, if you practice these things, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see what I'm saying there? This is not the idea of someone falling into a momentary sin or a lapse of sin. What he's saying is this is the pattern of this individual's life. Now, let me give you an idea of how it works. When I was raised in New Orleans, I'm actually from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, Shalmet to be exact. Anyone know where Shalmet is? Don't hold that against me. But anyway, so if you know Shalmet, you know why. But, but Shalmet's like, like south of New Orleans and... And so uh, we were raised where when you built a house in South Louisiana, you had to drive pilings down, right? Because, because it's built on water, and the water, water was so high, and, and, and the ground just sinks, and so you had to drive pilings down. And, and you knew what, what houses were not built well, not because of the outside structure or the facade on the outside, but what was beneath the surface in the foundation. And you could only tell when the trials and the testing of a storm came, right? 
You board up the house, you got inside and you prayed, kind of like a big bad wolf, right? You puffed and you puffed, and you prayed that your house would close down, right? Here inside. And, and what would happen is you'd see houses built right next to each other. Some would survive the ravages of the storm, and others would be blown down completely short. It wasn't because of the foundation. I mean, it wasn't because they cut corners or the painting or the construction. It was the foundation. It was something below the surface that you couldn't see. You know Jesus said the same thing. For the man who hears my words and does them is like a man who built his house on the rock. And the winds blew and the waters rose and the floods came and it stood. And it, and it stood. Why? Because it was founded on the rock, which was Christ. But the man who hears my words and doesn't do them or doesn't obey them is like a man who built his house on the sand. And the winds blew and, and the waters rose and the floods came and great was the fall of it because he built his house on the sand. Jesus, what are you saying? Jesus is basically saying, works alone, or words alone will not prove your salvation. Can I just be honest with you guys for a moment? I know I don't know you very well, but I just want to speak, speak a truth into your life as someone spoke into me. That, 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 that maybe some of you in here are holding on to a salvation experience that didn't happen when you were a child. Just I just want to be honest with you, brothers. Because I really want you to get this right tonight. Maybe the fact that you did sign a card, or even walk an aisle, or even you may be a part of church or Sunday school class, that, that maybe words alone will not prove your salvation. Why? Because your conduct of life looks nothing like, like, like the Bible, looks nothing like Christ. Maybe you can follow through with baptism. You could even go on mission trips. You may even give to the church. Praise God. Bless you for that. But you know and God knows. Maybe your wife doesn't even know. Maybe your kids don't even know. That if you were honest and standing before the God of the universe, you could not honestly say that you truly, really knew him. One seminary professor told me this. He said, Robbie, you don't judge your salvation. You never judge your salvation. By the date in the front cover of your Bible, you judge it by the conduct of your life. You don't, you don't judge your salvation by the fact that when you, when you supposedly got saved, you wrote it in the front cover of your Bible. You, you judge it by the conduct of your life. So let me ask you, are, are you seeking godliness? Do you seek holiness? Do you seek righteousness? I'm not saying that you won't struggle, because Paul said in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. What a wretched man I am. I'm not talking about that. But, but I'm talking about the, 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 the sum total of your life. As you look at your life, you realize, wow, I'm really far from God. What, Robbie, why are you belaboring this point? Why, why are you continuing to, to, to hammer this drum? This is why. Because I really believe parents in here, pastors, if we begin to diagnose people, we could give them the right recipe or prescription for health. And the problem I see in many churches is we are holding on to something in our children's lives, in our own lives, that isn't there. So instead of telling you, hey, listen, clean up, Joe, you just need to get it right. Hey, suck it up, Ron, you need to be a stronger man. We need to say, brother, you're lost, and you need Jesus. Let me give you an example. Think of it this way. Let's say you're climbing a mountain. I mean, in Chattanooga, everybody, there's mountains everywhere. So everybody's climbing mountains. And so let's say you're climbing a mountain, and, and you don't know much about mountain climbing, and so you're walking up the mountain, and you see this man in climbing a tire, right? He has the backpack. He has the cords. He has a nutrient bar in one hand. He has a compass in the other hand, and he's hiking up. Now, do you tell that guy where to climb and where to go? No. What do you do? Hey, sir, can we follow you? We're going to follow him up. Now, let's see you walk a little further. And you see a man in a business suit. He's in a business suit. He's got a tie on. He's got a Rolex watch on the left arm. He's got a cell phone, iPhone in the right hand. And he's got slacks and dress shoes on. What is wrong with this man? Yeah, and he's lost. Because there's no way that he belongs on the mountain. Do you ask that man for directions? No, you say, sir, apparently... You're lost, right? See, the way you diagnose the situation will determine the prescription for, for survival or prescription for the way out. There are some people in here, I'm just going to be honest with you, that are lost. You're hanging on to something that just isn't there. And so in just a few moments, I, I want to ask you to come forward 
Maybe just bow before the Lord. Maybe at your seat. Maybe, maybe grab a brother. Maybe go to the side and, and just do business with God tonight. And realize, Jesus, you're the only one who can set me free. I've been living a lie. I've been playing a game. And I'm lost. Maybe I'm a deacon in the church. Or maybe I've been on mission trips. Or maybe maybe I'm faithful. And I teach Sunday school. But, but, but when it comes to a relationship with the God of the universe, I just don't have that. Because John says, I'm lost and I'm a liar. But notice the flip side. The flip side is, the, the first individual is a professing person. The second individual is a practicing believer. John, John, John flips it on us, and he shows us that there's another side of the story, and that's the practicing believer. Look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now that is the key, and I have to be honest with you, if I was studying this passage this is where I spent the majority of my time. You know, pastors, Pastor Greg can tell you, we, we love to see how the Greek words and the English words flow together. And we, we want to know exactly what the word says because we want to share with you what God is saying. And, and so what John says here is this. He's saying, this we may know that we are in him. This is what he's saying. By our works, we will know if we're truly a believer. Anyone who obeys God experiences the love of God. Now, John is writing and confronting the Gnostics of his day that were saying, just need to know knowledge. If you check enough boxes, you fill in enough blanks, then you can, and you know the secret handshake, then man, you're a believer. And John's saying, no, that, that's not the case because you don't work to be saved, but you will work from your salvation, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God, not as a result of works. So that no one may boast, for we are God's, here it is, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is what he's saying. We don't work to be saved, but we will work from salvation, right? Now this is what he said, which is an interesting insight. And if you hear nothing else, here it is. John says when you obey God, the love for God or the love of God is perfected in you. Now there are three options in the Greek as to what he's saying. Is it God's love for man, option A? Is it man's love for God? Or is it just describing the love of God? Because that will determine and unlock the passage. God's love for man, man's love for God, or the love of God. And I'm going to submit to you it's the second one. It's our love for God. So what he's saying is this. As we know him, then our love for God increases and it's perfected in us. And I know that from Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. What he says. By this we know that we come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him. But he does not keep his commandments. Is a liar. Who has the NIV today here? The NIV gets it right I think here. But if anyone obeys his word. Love for God. Is truly made complete in him. It's the same thing Jesus said in John 14. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. John chapter 14, verse 21. Let me show you the chart. When you understand this, man, it will change your life. Jesus is saying, when you know God, the more you know God, you love God. And the more you love God, the more you will obey God. And the more you obey God, the more you know God. Now watch what he's saying. He's saying that when you spend time with the Lord, you'll love Him. So the, maybe the reason you don't love God is because you don't know Him. And I'm not talking about superficial knowledge. I was raised Catholic for 19 years, uh, for, for 26 years actually. And, and I went to church and I checked boxes and I knew of Jesus. But I didn't know Him. Right? So maybe the reason you don't love Him is because you don't know Him. And maybe the reason you don't obey Him is because you don't love Him. And maybe the reason you don't love Him is because you don't know Him. But watch this. Once you know Him and then you love Him, and then you obey Him, God begins to reveal more of Himself to you. And then you know Him more. And the more you know Him, you love Him more. And the more you love Him more, you obey Him more. And the more you obey Him more, you live the abundant life. Because you know Him more, because He manifests Him, He trusts you more. You'll never serve God faithfully, Warren Wiersbe said, until you love Him fervently. Write that down. You will never serve God faithfully unless you love Him fervently. So here's a question as we get close to the end. The question is this. Do you do God's commands as restrictions of happiness 
Or do you view God's commands as expressions of love? That's the thermometer to determine where you're on with God. Do you view God's commands as restrictions of happiness? God's always trying to, you know, he's a, he's a sore sore, but he's always on the break of the party, you know. He's always on the sorrow land. Do you look at restrictions of, uh, of, of, of your happiness or expressions of his love? For years, that's what I looked at God. I was raised in a Roman Catholic home. It's pretty painful to go to church. In fact, I went to church every single Sunday as, as half Italian, Roman Catholic. And if we missed church on Sunday, we went to confession on Saturday. And uh, I would go to church on Sunday, and then I'd walk out of church, and from Monday until Saturday, I would expect to I'd live like I wanted, and then come back on Sunday, and I would expect the peace of God to come back over me. And you know what I realized is that that doesn't just happen in the Catholic religion. That happens with Baptists too, right? <laughs> I mean, that just happens with everybody, right? We go to church on Sunday, we check a box, box and we live like we want it. Well, I got a scholarship to play basketball at UNC Greensboro in North Carolina. And I was, anybody from... Okay, awesome. Yeah. So, so I didn't go, but, but I went. But it was a great offer. But anyway. But you'll see, God, we'll talk about it. God was in this thing. So, so I was going to college. I literally had signed the papers. I was going to go there. And two weeks before leaving to go to college, the girl I'm dating at the time in high school throws a fit. She says, there's no way that you're going that far away. We're going to date. I mean, we're meant to be forever, right? She's not my wife now. But anyway, we're meant to be forever, right? I mean, I mean you've got to say. So I literally opened the phone book and found William Carey College. Right? I didn't even heard this. Book. Anybody heard of William Carey before? Neither did I. But anyway, so I opened the phone book, and I'm like, William Carey College. So I called Coach Knight up on the phone. And I said, Coach Knight, I got a scholarship to play Division One basketball when I come try out for the team. And he said, Yeah. And he said, Yeah, but the problem is school starts in two weeks and we have no spots. I said, No, you don't understand. I have a Division One scholarship. Can I at least come try out for the team? And he appeased me and he said, Come on and try out. Well, the only person to try out against me was the assistant coach, Laron. And Laron gives me this try. And I just school this guy because he's like in his forty, his third, late thirty. And I just school him. The coach says, Hey, listen, we're going to give you a full ride to play basketball at William Carey College. And so I'm all excited. And I don't realize at the time that William Carey College is a Southern Baptist University and I'm Roman Catholic. Now, I don't know if you know what that means. <laughs> but I was the target of every evangelism class on campus, right? What did we share Christ with? It's Robbie. And I didn't hide it. Back then, I, I had, a, I had a, a, a 944 Porsche my dad had bought me in college. He made a deal with me. He said, if you get good grades and get a scholarship, you can have any car you want except a Ferrari and a Lamborghini and get a body shop. And so I said, what about Porsche? And he forgot the Porsche. So I had this car and, and literally would cruise through campus with that red 944 Porsche with the unedited version of Tupac Shakur on my 8-inch bazooka tubes in the trunk. If you don't know that as a kid, it's not good. Right? And so, please, Brad, no, no stories after. But anyway, so I'm cruising through campus. And two weeks into being there, the girl that I'm dating from back home thinks that I'm cheating on her and literally breaks up with me at the mall. And so now I'm stuck at this Southern Baptist College. Little did I know, behind the scenes, God was providentially working. I heard the gospel for the first time in the first year. I rejected the gospel. And then in 1995, a man by the name of Jeremy Brown took me in my dorm room and he said, Robbie, I know you don't want Christ, I know you have no desire for Christ, but if you ever get into a bind and you ever cry out to the Lord, if everyone's left you and you feel like you're at a dead-end place in life, you can cry out to the Lord Jesus, put your faith in Him, and repent of your sin. And I said, Jeremy, thanks, but, but no thanks, I'm not really interested in that. And so I would reject the gospel. I got out of college in 1998. I started a computer business. It was successful for almost a year. It went belly up. I decided I didn't want to do anything in the business world, and so I started to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Now, I don't know if you guys know uh, this no whole bar is kind of UFC fighting. Uh, and so I was training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at the time. I was training boxing at the time. So I was aspiring to be in the UFC. Now you're going to say this is 1997, 98, uh, when you got paid like a hundred bucks to fight. Most of the guys I trained with didn't even have insurance to pay for the doctor's bills when, when you get beat up. And, and it seemed like a great idea for me. And my mom came up to me. She said, "Let me get this straight." you got a college degree, and you want to be in the UFC. And I said, that, that's exactly what I want to do. She said, that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
I said, you know what? Now that you say that, it does make a lot of sense to me either. And so I realized I had to make money. And so a guy saw me at a club one night, a bar, and he said, hey, would you be interested in being the head bouncer of my club downtown New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras? We're expecting a thousand people a night, and I need somebody to run the club. I said, perfect. Let me get this straight. I can get paid to fight. <laughs> I'm in. And so at the time, I did that, and that, and that was a three-month stint. Uh, back then, I was 6'6", 295 pounds. Uh, I had some illegal supplements, not from GMC, helping and aiding with the process. And so, and so I was bouncing, and I was escorting a guy to the parking lot one day uh, at night for disturbing uh, some of the ladies in the club. And so I was escorting him to the parking lot, and he cursed me out the entire time. I had a friend of mine with me. He reached down to the seat of his car, and he came up with a loaded 9mm, and he pointed it at my head, and he said, now tell me what to do. And I thought, okay, it's time for a career change. And so I made a, a lateral move from bouncing to bouncing, and I said this was from outside the club to inside the club, and I did that for another three months. I was driving home from work, November 22nd, 1999, and I was coming across the high-rise in New Orleans, and an 18-wheeler came across two lanes of traffic, and rear-ended my car at 65 miles an hour, sandwiched my car into the guardrail, and uh, my seat actually broke off the hinges because my dad had a body shot. We, we, we rebuilt total cars, and we didn't realize there was a hairline fracture in the seat, and so the seat broke off the hinges, and the seat got locked, my back tore. And uh, the doctor said, after I went to the doctor, said, it's amazing you made it through the accident uh, without being seriously hurt or crippled. We're going to send you home with four things. I was 22 years old. I'd never taken a drug before in my life. And I went home that day with Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And if you don't know much about drugs, uh, that's not a good combination for a 22-year-old who's in pain. And I was legitimately in pain. And so I began to take the drugs every four to six hours for pain. And you know the story. Within two to three months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. And I got this insatiable desire to get high. Don't want to make money. I, I don't want to be successful. Don't want to meet women. I just want to get high. So a guy comes up to me and he says, why are you fooling with pharmaceutical drugs when you can buy street drugs, you can buy it in bulk, you can bag it up, and you can sell it for a profit. And so what I did is I took the street knowledge from the world and I brought it into the drug world. And that year I started an illegal import business where I began to traffic everything into the city of New Orleans from Mexico to Miami, from ecstasy, GHB, Special K, not a cereal, uh, marijuana, <laughs> and then heroin and cocaine. So I had this desire that I had to feel, and I'd run through my drugs in two weeks that were supposed to last a month, and a guy said, why are you fooling with pharmaceutical drugs? You can just buy heroin. You can buy it cheaper, you can get it whenever you want, and you can just sell it and make a profit, and that sounded good in the beginning, and then my addiction caught up to the habit, and uh, I was addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. Went to two rehab treatments, uh, one in Tijuana, Mexico, of all places, and that's a whole other story. Came back to the States, and uh, yeah, and came back to the States, and uh, literally thought I was living a good life for a season. I mean, I have to be honest with you. At one time, we were trafficking thousands of ecstasy pills into the wallets. I'm not telling you this to impress you, but just to impress upon you that at one time we had thousands of dollars. We did what we wanted. I bought what I wanted. I drove a fifty thousand dollar Cadillac CTS, black on black, twenty inch chrome rims, nine thousand dollar stereo system in the trunk. The same guy who put Master P system in, put my system in. I'm not telling you to crush you, but this is show you how far the Lord has brought me from. And so by the world standards, you would have looked at me and said, Robbie, you, you really have it all, and I thought I did. But even then, deep down inside, I knew that I was far from God, that I was missing something. In the midst of the women, in the midst of the party, in the midst of the cars and the vacation, I knew I was missing something. After two rehab treatments, the addiction became overwhelming for the last six months of my my addicted life, I had a $180 a day heroin and cocaine addiction. That means I snorted $180 a day of heroin and cocaine to live. Every day I woke up, I had one mission in mind, and that was to get high. I robbed my own father for $15,000. The times got bad, my mom found out about it. My dad called me on the phone, and uh, he gave the phone to my mother. I don't forget the phone call. She said, Robbie, we found out about how you stole. See, what I did was I took dad's credit card number when he wasn't looking. I memorized the number, and I went online and charged, and then sold it for drugs. My mom who cared for me, my dad who supported me and loved me. I lived in the same house. They found out about it. They said, Robbie, uh, we found out about what you did. Your father's serious and I'm disappointed in you. Don't ever come to this house again. And I said, you know what, Mom? Never needed you. Never wanted to be with you. I don't need you guys. I do what I want. And I lived for the next three months in living hell. We mastered the art of the cold shower. We couldn't pay the bills. We couldn't turn the air on. So we lived without air in the house. We lived without uh, gas in the house for three months. We lived without electricity for a month. 
Uh, we literally got water for a month. The bill collectors called, so they turned the phone off. We mastered the art of the cold shower. We're literally freezing cold water, freezing cold outside because you don't have you don't have gas. And so we get into the freezing cold water. We get out, we lather up, and we try to bear again. I did that for almost three straight months. And then finally, after I went to the tree rehab for the second time and came home, I remembered what Jeremy Brown told me. Just a side note, if you think that the sowing of your seeds are falling on hard ground, don't miss this. Brad can tell you I was the last guy who would ever come to Christ. The last guy. And I remember when Jeremy told me in 1995, I got on my room, it wasn't in a revival service, it wasn't even in church, I just got on my knees and I said, God, if you're real, would you come into my life? I, I repent of my sins. I know that you're the only one who can save me. I wanted to end my life. I was pushing the envelope of drugs and then finally surrendered my life to the Lord. And I said, God, I promise you I'll do two things. One, I'll not be ashamed to tell people about what you did. And two, I'm going to commit everything. This isn't, this isn't a casual commitment. I'm giving you a blank check to my life. And friends, November 12, 2002, a little over 11 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, Jesus Christ came into my life and I had a radical, all-right, 24-hour experience with Jesus. It was so radical. I went to my dad and I said, Dad, God's called me to preach. I'm going into the ministry. And I didn't even know what that was and he didn't know what that was. And so my dad looks at me raised Catholic and he says, Son, how in the world are you going to get married by being a priest and wearing a robe? And I said, No, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. And, and that's how radical the change was. And then I wandered for the next seven to eight months. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to read the Word. I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't know how to memorize Scripture. I didn't know how to pray. I knew the Our Father and the Hail Mary. I didn't know those things. And then a man in church by the name of David Platt, who's a churchman, he walks across the church on Sunday morning and he says, hey, listen, God has put you in my heart. Would you be interested in meeting once a week to memorize Scripture, study the Bible, and pray? I said, man, I'd love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we start? <laughs> and that's what I want to talk to you about tomorrow. The difference that made the difference in my life was discipleship. But I want to finish with a story that I think radically changed my life, and I hope it changes yours. Because I know in a group this time, some of you would say, Robbie, your story is just like mine, because I'm far from God. Robbie, your story is similar to mine. Maybe, Robbie, your story is nothing like mine. But the cool thing is, no matter what the backgrounds and the stories are, we all have the same story, and that is we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Because we can't save ourselves. F.B. Meyer, the great theologian and pastor, went to hear... C.T. Studd one time speak about how he was leading the world of athletics to go over to China to work with Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. C.T. Studd was the equivalent of LeBron James today. He played cricket, which was a big sport in England, but he's equivalent of LeBron James. And it would be like LeBron walking away from basketball in his career to go over to China to be a ministry in anonymity and obscurity. And so F.B. Meyer couldn't believe this, and so he, he didn't know about the world renouncing he studied, he goes to hear him speak, and C.P. Sud said these words, which actually pierced his heart. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, there is no sacrifice too great that I should ever make, not make for him. Now think about that. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, which he is, then there's no sacrifice too great that I should not make. Meyer waited in line that day, and everybody was waiting. He came to this long line to talk to Stud. And he walked up to Meyer. I walked up to Stud, and, and Meyer said, Hey, it's evident that you have something that I don't have. And Stud, without missing a beat, looks Meyer right in the eye and says, If you surrendered your entire life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Meyer, not thinking, he says, Yeah, yeah, I've done. I mean, I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, I'm a theologian. Yes, I've done. But he knew right after the words came out of his mouth, and in the quietness of it all, his own heart. So we went home that night, he records in his journal, and he got along with the Lord and began to pray, God, God, I want to give you everything. He felt like the Lord had come to him, saying to him, Meyer, I want you to give me everything. He says, Lord, I thought I'd give you everything. And he said to Meyer, I want all the keys to your heart. And Meyer said he took out his key ring at the time. And he supernaturally, spiritually offered his keys to the Lord. He said, Lord, take it all. Here's everything for you. He said he felt like the Lord saying to him, Meyer, you still lack one key. You have not given me all the keys to your life. And if I'm not Lord of all, I'm not Lord at all. 
But what are you talking about, Lord? I've given you all the keys to my heart. No, my, there's one key still left. There's one area of your heart that you haven't given me. And if I'm not Lord of all, I'm not Lord at all. But Lord, it's, a, it's an insignificant key. It's just a small part of my life. What are you talking about? Meyer, if I'm not Lord of all, I'm not Lord at all. And Meyer said that was the changing, turning point in his life. He, for the first time, gave God his life. He gave God his career. He gave God his future. He gave God the past failures. He gave God his family. He gave God his job. He gave God his finances. And you know as well as I do, we still talk about F.B. Meyer today. Friends, I want to know, I mean, listen to me. What could God do with your life if you gave him everything? Everything. Your mind, the things you think about. Your eyes, the things you look at. Your ears, the things you hear. Your heart, the things you cherish. Your hands, the things you handle. Your feet, the places you go. Your family, your careers, your job. What could God do if you gave him everything? I want to put something on the screen. I want you to think about this. If you're 95% committed to the Lord, you're 100% not committed. What do you mean, Robert? That, 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 that sounds, sounds like you're being over the top here. If I were to tell you tonight, I love my wife. In fact, I love her so much that I'm so committed to her 95% of the time. Only 5% of the time I run around with other women. But with that 95% means a strong 95, right? What would you guys say to me? You're 100% not committed to, to your wife. So if we use that logic with our, with our wives, why would we not use that logic with the Lord? See, I really believe that every man in here can say one, one or two things about everything in your life. Here it is. I wish I had. I'm glad I did. I wish I had. I'm glad I did. And I pray you're not like some men who say it first. I want you to just bow your heads for just a moment and close. And I want to give you an opportunity to convince us with the Lord tonight. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the message from the 2013 All-In Men's Retreat hosted by Houston's First Baptist Church. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. Pray that you have a great day.